Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Booze, Booms and Busts podcast, the podcast where we attempt to blend market commentary with booze consumption, uh, specifically beer and with beer ratings as well. My name is Boaz Shoshan and as ever, I'm joined by Sam Valkering. Sam, how are you getting on this week? It's been a pretty wild one, certainly in the last couple of days. Well, in fact, it's actually been a wild one all the way, all the way through this week. At the beginning, we had some incredible increases in uh, in valuation for tech companies and then at the end we had some incredible decreases in valuations for tech companies so it has been quite a wild one how have you been finding it? uh yeah I've, I've had a pretty good interesting week it's i it's, it's almost probably ironic that this was the first week of the slightly delayed tour de france as well because <laughs> in the markets it's been like a a, a stage profile with a category one climb to the peak and then a wild descent to the finishing line uh, at the other <laughs> side. So um, there's probably some, um, you could, in fact, I, I think I've done this in the past is um, sometimes when you get a week like this in markets where it's sort of just up and down and up and down, uh, you can take the image of some of the Tour de France stage profiles and almost perfectly overlay them on a chart, on a weekly chart, or sometimes even the daily chart of some of the, the stocks or the indices <laughs> that are floating around, which says something about investing in stocks and, uh, and how crazy it can be. But yeah, it's been a super, super, super fun week all around, I think. Yeah, there's certainly been uh, no shortage of excitement. Uh, yeah, I mean, where, where should we even start with this? There was a strange case of the Tesla three times bull and bear exchange traded products that we could go for. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, so the incredibly interesting structure, uh, an interesting idea of why any investment bank would want to create such a product, which uh, if you hold it will give you three times the upside or downside performance. Especially so late in, in the piece, like when Tesla's already gone this bonkers kind of run. I mean, have they, have they been around that long? I don't, I'm not even sure how long they've been around. I only started hearing about them this week, so I'm not all that sure. Maybe they'd been in the works for a while, but they were only released this week. Um, but, uh, you know, with Tesla going up so much as it had, I mean, then you can make the argument for why they made the three times bear one, you know, the one where you profit three times. Uh, depending on that uh, well uh, on that makes sense yeah yeah so i mean the people who bought that i mean they must have been uh, who bought that earlier this week are probably probably sitting on a bundle oh well i saw i mean i saw a um i saw an image on twitter uh, today uh, with that and and how at the start of the week the yeah the the 3x um uh the 3x long etf so, and when we when we talk about three X and things like that, we're talking about leverage. So these are leveraged um, uh, funds where, within the fund itself, there are instruments, financial instruments, derivatives, leveraged instruments that um, amplify the returns. So the the aim is is that when the price of a stock goes up for the long uh, leveraged ETFs, you amplify those returns. Um, somewhat significantly but on the flip side is that if you're in uh, one of the long funds and the price tanks then you substantially <laughs> increase your losses and man the chart on the 3x long tesla uh, etf is crazy because it did it went sort of um exponentially higher and then just crashed and burned overnight so it was quite funny but like you say the flip side is the bear one which would make sense when Tesla was up around a almost a half trillion dollar company. Um, that would that was the time to get the to get the bear ETF in. And I think it was even it was yes yesterday evening before the US markets opened. I saw a tweet from Dominic Frisbee that was just like, "I'm shorting Tesla now." Uh, it's, uh, it's something along the lines of, um, "If this isn't the best right wing comedy, I don't know what is." <laughs> That's uh, yeah, it's definitely a good way of putting it. The thing with those with such products is that there's always major. Well, so the reason that you create such a product is to earn fees off it, right? Yeah. Uh, because um, so what I think what was the name of it? Like Granite Rock or something was the custodian for that. I think where so, they yeah. made yeah where they made this uh, this product and they were going to skim a load of fees off it, 
uh, and whenever you know the, the ETP gets rebalanced, then um, they they you know they take their cut. And it'd probably be a pretty fat cut. So it must have just seen the huge amount of interest in Tesla from everyone and their dog really uh, during the Wu flu lockdown. And so you know we've got we'll make a lot of money here if we we promised uh, extended gains from uh, from from whatever Tesla does, be it upside the downside, because of course Tesla gets plenty of hate as well. Uh, mm. And there are people who really do want to short it an awful lot. They don't want to go, uh, you know, do some very crazy shorting strategies. They just want something that's going to go up when Tesla goes down. And then, of course, you know, you can net those trades off against each other by having both the bull and the bear ETP, right? You, you, the liability you create by creating the bull ETP, you can uh, you can net it off with the bear one, uh, and sort of hedge that. You have the market hedge itself out without you having to do very much about it. But yeah, so I guess they're they're skimming a lot of cash from that. I mean, that's yeah. uh, that they must have made whatever whatever happened. The custodians probably making money off that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the the inflows into those products must have been just off the chart. And you know, it's it's funny. I've not I've not really seen those sorts of products pop up uh, with individual stocks before that I can recall. Um, you see them, I see them a bit with commodities. Yeah. Um, you see it with, sorry, say again. And with indices. Yeah. And with indices. Absolutely. So that, that's, it's not uncommon in that space, but with individual stocks that, you know, th this might be the beginning of, of, of a whole new range of very specific, um, exchange traded products that, that do focus in on, on topical things. Cause like I've seen it. Also in, in, with Bitcoin as well, you know, you can get, you know, there are some, they're not necessarily traded in the same way that you find um, something like the Tesla ETP or, or, or stocks in general. But there are exchanges that have in the crypto space, you know, effectively Bitcoin funds where you can, you can leverage up and, and go long or you can leverage and go short. And so all those sorts of derivatives and different kinds of products are popping up in the crypto market as well and it's, it's weird it's like at the moment with so much renewed i wouldn't even say renewed but new interest perhaps with just stocks and investing and, and day trading in general you kind of get the feeling like you know the, the the organizations that make these leveraged funds and all that sort of thing are going to create more of them to to like you say sort of get their slice of the pie and, and, and get cut their fees from all the users that are coming to it, not really understanding how these things work um, and the kinds of fees that are involved with it. And it, it feels like we're kind of starting to now step into a whole new danger zone um, of, of, of leveraged and, and complex financial products, which kind of are the foundation of a lot of the, a lot of economic, stress that exists in the financial system it's like all these what should be a relatively simple straightforward system is over, overly complex with all these you know different types of products and derivatives and funds and even for you know i've been been investing since i was you know 10 years old and and, and professionally involved in the markets for well over a decade and it just feels like everything's going to start to get a little bit more complex and um, for them to find new ways to skim their cut off of the average punter. Mm, yeah. I would, I would hesitate to think that this is a, a, a you know, a brand new world of the, uh, where, where we're getting into leveraged uh, individual stock products. Um, I, I don't think we're, I mean, we've obviously gotten there, but I don't think it's a new thing. I think it's like, this is the final, uh, the final conclusion, the final acceleration, you know, the, the end game of all of what exchange traded products can ultimately be like, where can you go yeah. after that? You've already done <laughs> sure. leveraged commodity ETFs up to one, two, three, and five X. Um, and I even, I think some people wanted to do more than five X as well. You've already got short volatility product like short VIX, uh, ETPs, exchange traded products, or exchange traded notes, exchange traded funds. Uh, you've already got um, you know long indices, short indices. Uh, again, two, three, five x. Uh, the idea that we're now just going to individual stocks 
and saying here and not just it's not even three x the you know you know they're they're going for you know they're, well they're not it's not just two x right they're going for they're going for more than that three x five x on an yeah. individual stock uh, is uh, pretty crazy. It's uh, it just seems like that the the nth degree like this is what the nth degree of financialization and you know over you know the overbreeding of these financial products um it that's what it it just seems like this is sort of the the last you know this is the this is as extreme as this behavior can get is this is is something like this tesla ultra short ultra long thing i think what the next extremity is probably just even more leverage Like I know, I know in with some in some of the crypto. Do you know what's interesting, right? Is that sometimes it almost feels like now with the kind of development that happens in the crypto markets and the speed of which that happens, it's almost like the find the traditional legacy financial system is now playing catch up to them and kind of looking at what's happening there and going, hey, that looks that looks actually pretty good. Maybe we can implement that into stocks or. Um, different funds and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised to see because I know in the crypto world you can you can fifty times and a hundred times leverage um, into into crypto plays. And, oh yeah, yeah. It, know, I think it's the, the packaging of it into a product rather yeah. than letting people do it themselves. I think is the is the is the source. Um, you know where they're just trying to make it as easy as a one stop shop because of course you know with any of these leveraged plays leveraged ETPs. You do, there's huge tracking error every time. So if this thing is three times long Tesla, if you buy, you're not actually going to get three times long Tesla. You're actually yeah, going to get right. probably 2.5. Uh, and then there are days when if the hedging's not done right, it'll be way, way more or way less than that as well. Yeah, well, that's right. I think a lot of people, and I've, I've, I've heard this from people before, that some, mainly looking at the commodities funds is that they're like, oh, if it's a three, three times commodity fund, that if it goes up, by one percent then mine will go up by three percent and then (laughs) when it when the actual price moves and they don't get the return they expected they're confused and they don't understand how it works it's like well you don't really know the kind of um, instruments that they're using behind the scenes to create that leverage so you're not always going to get the actual return that you think you are because the title is kind of a bit misleading it's not it's not always does what it says on the tin in that sense um, and then likewise on the downside, while you can think that you might, you know, you have an expectation of what it can be, it can actually be far worse than that, which is, I mean, it's, it's complicated. And, and to be honest, a lot of those products, I don't even understand. It makes about as much sense to me as the, the name of the first beer we've been drinking today, <laughs> uh, which we should probably mention because we are, we are, well, we do talk about the markets and crazy things and that. We are drinking uh, beer as well today. So maybe I'll, I'll let you kick off with this first one. Uh, uh, so what is, what is this? What is, what is Mungo Juice? So yeah, so here we are with Mungo Juice, uh, spelled <laughs> J-O-O-S-E. And this is from the Cheshire Brewhouse. Now we have had uh, on previous BBB podcasts, we have yep. had Cheshire Brewhouse beer before. If memory serves, what we had before was actually uh, you know, very nice. It was. So Mungo Juice is uh, summertime pale, and it's part of what is called the Zimmergists Project, which I have no idea what it is, but it has a very nice label. Uh, in the summertime when the weather is hot. So I am believing this is a, a reference to Mungo Jerry. Um, and what, what's, the, I can't, what's the most famous... Uh, most famous song that Mungo Jerry did. Uh, I think it's just in the summertime. All right. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a which yeah, it's a pretty good, pretty good song. Incredibly politically correct, incorrect. Uh, if someone, <laughs> someone played that today, they would get in an awful lot of trouble. Uh, but I believe Mungo Juice is a reference to Mungo Jerry, and maybe there's maybe some mango in here as well because it is really quite fruity. Um, but yeah, and it is a 3.9% uh, alcohol, so this is really very light. Very colourful label, you know, like a bit very exotic. Now, what do you make of it, Sam? Well, I just googled Mungo Jerry, and <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and oh, yeah. I think you're bang on the money. I think this is a this is a tribute somewhat to Mungo Jerry, and I just want to point out that the well, they're a group, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I've never I've never heard of them. I honestly never heard of them. 
Wow. With quite a distinctively featured lead singer, if memory Yeah, well, serves. that's that's exactly what I was going to mention. That is the finest set of mutton chops <laughs> I've ever seen. Wait till oh, you see wow. the gap between his front teeth, mate. Yeah, it's 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 something. It's on another level. I've not. Yeah, and and maybe maybe that comes back the 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 fro with the extreme mutton chops. But um, back back to the beer, which does appear to be uh, somewhat related to that. Um, there are no mutton chops on the beer, I will point out. It is a can. It is not a furry can. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite nice. It's, it's pretty low um, alcohol content. So even for, for me back home, I'd, you'd call this a light beer, uh, not because of the weight, not even because of the calories, but because of the alcohol content coming in at a 3.9%. Which uh, falls into the concept of even being a session beer, <laughs> yeah, or subsession uh, even. A, yeah, like what, what? What? What could be more than a, a session beer? A, a, uh, some sort a of lunchtime beer. Cream. So it's yeah, you, a breakfast beer even. Breakfast beer, yeah. Though you do get breakfast stout, so maybe maybe that would interfere with that definition. How about mm. how about an elevenses beer, um, or? Like a, a wake up beer, like morning, early, uh, rising. It's like, it's got, like the, you know how sometimes you go to bed and you have like a glass of water perhaps next to next to your bed for when you wake up in the middle of the night. It's like, ah, I'm so thirsty. Instead oh, yeah. of water, you'd just have a, a can of mungo juice. Yeah, and, why not? Just have a swig back to sleep. Happy days. Yeah, um, I mean, I should try that. So, I should try that tonight. <laughs> it's, it's got so little alcohol in it. It's not even going to dehydrate you that much. So you'll be fine. That's right. It's, 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 it's almost, well, and it, it's funny because when I poured it out, I was like, this is, this almost doesn't look like a, a beer. Because when I poured it out, it was, it was, as I believe the term was, uh, extremely effervescent. Oh, and yeah. um, it even, right. the, the top of it even started to go like a, you have, I don't know what you call them over here. I think you call them something else. But back home, we call them a spider, which is where you put like, you have like a glass of Coke and then you put a scoop of ice cream in it and it all kind of like bubbles up and, Goes all oh, like a float. Top. An ice cream float. Oh, ice cream float. There you go. We call them, well, I'm pretty sure. Well, I always used to call them this as a kid. You could do it with lemonade or you could do it with Coke or whatever. But we call them spiders. Ice cream spiders. spiders. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know mm. why. But anyway, it, it, it appeared, it had a similar appearance to that when I poured it out. And I believe I even said it looked a bit like a shandy with too much lemonade. Um, but look, so far, I'm thoroughly enjoying the mango juice. Um, probably would want a bit more punch into it, but hey, for a summertime pale, uh, it's doing the job so far. Yeah, I must say, uh, incredibly refreshing. Uh, I've been caning this thing so far. Uh, I'm pretty. Much oh, that's a word we don't hear enough. Caning. Oh yeah, yeah, caning it. <laughs> I've been uh, caning it. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, it's not hitting the sides as it's going down. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I would say this is incredibly refreshing. It doesn't taste very alcoholic at all. I could definitely drink quite a few of these. Um, very, very light, very fruity. Uh, yeah, this is um, this is definitely looking very good, Sam. I must say. Uh, you say uh, you say it's a bit like shandy with too much lemon. Uh, it does this sound to me like maybe one of these uh, one of these catchphrases used for somebody who's not all there, like uh, a spanner short of a toolbox or uh, a sandwich short of a picnic or. You know, all in can no pen. I've I got a good imagine, one for you. It's, you know, it's very, very Australian specific. But the uh, the saying we often use as well is a couple of kangaroos short of a top paddock. <laughs> that's great, mate. That's, uh, that's By the way, I, I, this is a curious. This is uh, as an aside. We're talking about uh, what you call spiders and what we call probably an ice cream float or something. Do you guys just as there are attempts in the UK to make ginger beer uh, alcoholic. Are there attempts in Straya to make root beer alcoholic? Um, I root beer. I I, I don't know. I've, I I don't even think I've even had a root beer. I've had ginger beer before, and I've had really? alcoholic ginger beer because in Australia there's it's quite easy to get your hands on some alcoholic ginger beer. Right. Root beer. Uh, it's, it's not something I'm particularly familiar with, to be honest with you. All right. Oh, I've, uh, for some reason, because the only way I've ever had root beer is through Bundaberg, the Australian brand. Ah, I so I've always associated it with Australia, but I could be incorrect. 
Yeah, no, the, the, the Bundy ginger beer, Bundaberg ginger beer. I wanna, to be fair, when I say Bundy, it can be taken two ways because Bundy is also Bundaberg rum, which I don't oh. know if you've ever had Bundaberg rum, but that yep. is quite something else as well. Yes, so we've got Bundy rum and we've also got Bundaberg ginger beer. So it can get a little confusing, although I've never had Bundaberg ginger beer with Bundaberg rum, but that could be something <laughs> as well. Uh, but root beer, I don't know. I don't even know what I don't even know what it tastes like, to be honest. I don't think I've ever had it. All right. Oh, well, yeah, clearly, clearly that's the wrong, wrong question. <laughs> but, uh, no, sorry, I hate to, uh, hate, to, hate to interrupt. We should probably, uh, well, I've actually finished mine. Are you, uh, have you almost finished yours? Uh, I'm pretty um, close. So maybe you start off with the rating and I'll, I'll uh, cane the rest of this one and then follow in with my rating. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really a very good, very good beer. Uh, maybe just because it's felt like a really long week or... Uh, some other reason, but uh, I found this to be a very refreshing beer, um, and I shall give this on our on our triple B rating system, which goes from triple B being the very best uh, down to double B, single B, single A, double A, and triple A, and triple A being the very worst. Uh, I will give this actually a double B, just a neutral double B, uh, which uh, I think is one of the uh, one of the highest uh, highest honors that we we've given on these beers so far. What do you make of this, Sam? Yeah, so I actually, so this is, this. I think this is the second or maybe even third beer we've had from the Cheshire Brewhouse. And uh, I agree with you. I think this is a, quite a delightful one to, to drink that isn't overly alcoholic, but yet as much as I'd probably want it to be a little, have a little bit more punch to it, I don't, don't feel like it's desperate, in desperate need of it. Um, it's got some, it's really crisp, like you say, super refreshing, could could cane a, a, a half dozen of these without too much trouble. I'd be pretty happy about it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think I think it was the lemon posset that I particularly liked last week or the week before or something from the Cheshire Brew House. And this is the second one. And I'm going to put this one as a double B as well because I enjoyed that immensely. And I've actually got, so while we've got our uh, beer rating system uh, here, which one, which we will publish at some point, um, I also have a little side list about my repeat beers for when I want to uh, buy and, and, and get a few <laughs> that I can drink that also my wife would be pretty keen to drink. And, mm -hmm. uh, and this is now, this is now joined uh, the lemon posset from the Cheshire brew house on my repeat visit list. Oh. So it's, it's oh, quite a compliment. Well, well, it, it hasn't rocked my socks for a triple B rating in terms of, um, a, you know, an individual beer. It's, it's one I will come back to again for sure. Oh, good. So this, uh, we should have a, we should designate a thing on that with like, uh, on the leaderboard, it comes like with uh, ladies honors, you know, it gets like a, you know, like a, yeah. a star yeah. or something on the side, you know, just uh, put a little asterisk nest next to it. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Now the uh, now the next next beer that we are onto is by Verdant Brewing Company. We have had quite a few from Verdant, and while we were bemoaning the lack of alcohol in the last beer, we are now going uh, double time. So we're on eight percent here. This Making is, up for uh, lost ground. <laughs> exactly, um, and it is it is named the rather uh, long name. Too many opinions water down the original idea, and this is a West Coast double IPA, so it should taste uber american uh and uh, yeah eight percent too many opinions for short simcoe amarillo cascade columbus and chinook pops inside um so yeah this shall be quite an interesting one so Good on, and in the uk i was just say on that idea of too many opinions right so I, this is this is a a little bit of a soapbox uh i'm about to go off on but well, on you, you know it's 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 one of, it's almost like a weird reflection of uh, society that we live in today. And I think that's, it's, it's due in part the, the rise of social media and, and instant, um, I guess, instant gratification or uh, that people have when they get likes and tweets and retweets and all that sort of stuff um, that people now mistake opinion for fact and people think that their opinion is fact. And it, it, it cre it's create we've got this weird landscape of what is fact and what is opinion. And no one's really, well, not a lot of people are very capable of deciphering between the two. And it makes me wonder that, you know, when we've, the, when you think about what's 
happened in, and this is probably only really in the last 10 years, right? So the likes of Facebook, the likes of Twitter, uh, even things like so Snapchat, Instagram, uh, TikTok being the most recent one, all major, very fast growing uh, social media platforms where people can get on, say effectively whatever they like. Um, and the way that people interpret that c can, can lead to a whole bunch of things like, you know, the, the, the QAnon phenomenon, um, and even all you know, these conspiracy theory groups and all that sort of stuff. And I just find it fascinating that when you, you know, when, when, when people put opinion on a, a, a site, the kind of trouble that it can now lead to. So I'm not sure if you've seen what's been happening back in my native homeland, but the police have started arresting people for particular Facebook posts that have been trying to uh, organize peaceful protests about some of the lockdown measures being put in place uh, under, under the guise of incitement or a threat to public health or something like that. But we've reached this weird stage now where you know, a decade ago or 15 years ago, these social platforms didn't exist and, and, and news and opinion and, and information and what is perceived to be fact came from very specific sources. Um, but that's, that's been eroded over the last decade. And now we don't really know what original sources are, where they come from and what is fact or what is opinion. And now it's leading to a point where even what you put online, you have to now double check because yourself, because you can now fall into the, into the, I guess, uh, area, the gray area of, of illegal behavior. And I just wonder what happens over the next decade. If we've seen this change in media over the last 10 years and the rise and value and, you know, no beating around the bush, incredible wealth generation opportunities that some of these social media companies have provided, that, that doesn't last forever like a lot of, you know, these sort of waves of change in social activity. You know, does, and even with TikTok now effectively being banned in the US and trying, someone trying to buy them and all these sorts of things and authorities cracking down on a lot of these social platforms like Twitter and Facebook and what can and can't be said. I think my question is, is, is are we going to revert back to more traditional news uh, and, and the, the companies behind them? Is there, is there going to be a resurgence back towards that? Or is it going to branch off in a whole nother way that we're going to see that we maybe even can't predict yet? Or do these social companies, these social media companies become more, dominant and influential for how people can have their say. And is that sort of, is that, does that become a new wealth opportunity? I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how we go forward from here. I find it very hard to imagine a resurgence for uh, the printed press in general. Uh, I find that uh, certainly for, certainly for when people are looking for content that they care deeply about. So, you know, the tabloids are, are still going to be great at creating clickbait, you know, um, sort of stimulation uh, of various <laughs> varieties. Right? That's, that's the exact of, correct word. Yeah, right. Uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, actually being seen as trusted vendors of news, you know, trusted source of news, I find that something that's quite hard for me to, to, to imagine a real resurgence there. You know, there was this uh, you know, you know, and I, and I say this. I, I the, of any of the print media that I uh, read with any regularity, it's really just uh, the FT, and and that's mostly just because uh, they are they still do, are, are good purveyors of data, and they're good purveyors of quotes from people who really do know what they're talking about. You know, so they're talking about uh, fund managers in certain uh, sectors or uh, uh, political operators who are well connected. I mean, they they can they at least have that access, and so you can uh, you can. Um, you know, you can harvest that. In terms of the opinion that comes out of that paper, uh, I, you know, huh. I, I hold a lot, quite a, quite a lot of contempt for uh, some of the opinion pieces that come out of it. And uh, you know, there's this one piece I remember. I was thinking about it the other day, and I, I it just sort of came back to me. Uh, where, and I don't know why. I don't know what, what sort of brought it on, but it was during the Yellow Vest protests, mm -hmm. and 
there was this opinion piece that was written by a very senior FT uh, writer who has since been promoted even higher cool. uh, about uh, the Yellow Vest protest. And she was doing, she, she wrote this piece where, uh, you know, this was the intelligence that she had described while she was on a skiing holiday in France. <laughs> ah. And she, be like, she begins the piece pretty much by, well, the entire case for the article that she makes is the Yellow Vest protesters, uh, you know, they started out with some good points, but then it just all got out of hand. And now the average French person just, you know, it, they, it's just that, you know, it's just cut out of it. The source for this is her driver as she's out on the ski holiday, right? And this was, you know, the basis for the whole article was just, you know, I've been speaking to the average French man on the street in the this posh French ski resort. Right. And this is, but it was, it was presented with no sense of irony whatsoever. Right? It was, <laughs> there was no, there was no self-awareness. Uh, and I did, you know, it really hurts me when I read that at the time. I was like, I cannot believe that somebody just wrote this. There was a similar thing uh, which the FT published actually during, uh, well, long ago actually, probably about six weeks or maybe two months ago, uh, which was stories about uh, the lockdown from Kensington, right? From someone in Kensington. Oh, and, you know, right. and I, 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 you know, I live in Kensington. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm I remember this one. Yeah, and it was just the, it just the, the lack of self awareness was simply incredible. You know, just talking about how. Uh, this person is, you know, just it's a, it's a, just such a stressful time. They've had they've had to order in special chess instructors to to help out with the kids. <laughs> they've uh, they've you know they've made the nanny live at their home, you know, one uh, way or another, just uh, to make sure that the nanny can always can always be there. Um, you know, just so out so out of touch with reality, and it's very hard for me to see something like. It, this somehow going in another direction where for some reason the FT is seen as uh, a very, you know, a very, you know, well, you know, very much in touch with what's actually going on. Uh, so they, it's good for market analysis, but in terms of, you know, culture or in terms of um, where, the where the world is moving, it, it's similar to the, the Economist is even worse, right? Oh. Uh, you know, is it, has the Economist it predicted anything that, that has happened? In the last ten years, right? Has it ever has it ever been on the button about alerting something to a new trend before it becomes mainstream? The the Economist know. is just white collar tabloid now, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good way of uh, a good way of describing uh, you know the way. And it, there's so much arrogance that comes with it, right? Where, that comes with <laughs> the Economist. The fact that you know the Economist, no edit, no one who writes it is is allowed to give a byline. It is always simply the Economist view. So no one, if you wrote it, if you wrote something that was complete nonsense in that magazine and it was revealed to be a month, a year later, no one would ever have known it was you that wrote that because you, know, you never actually put your name. It could have been anyone, the economist, right? Um, yeah. And, so yeah, and they can't, yeah, just some of these, the, some, of the, some of the stuff comes out, but I, I'm, I'm kind of going a little to, a little to the side. But I'm just saying, I don't think, I don't think print media, media is going to get some grand resurgence unless someone does some crazy new one that's somehow in touch and in tune and Javon trusts for, for their news. But I think what we have seen is a bit of a future where you have the plant, the, you know, the, the, all these platforms uh, like YouTube and, and Facebook and, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you, Facebook and also Twitter um, and uh, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, and a few, you know, a few of the others, you can see that there are uh, individual voices which gain huge amounts of following and huge amounts of trust. So you could find something like, you know, Joe Rogan is now effectively more important than many newspapers are. Uh, this yeah. is just one fella. He's got all, you know, he invites all manner of crazy folks onto, onto his podcast. Um, and he's by, by being uh, quite clearly out there and uh, with it making an attempt to not have a bias, in certain areas, Make, you know, making an attempt to try and be the guy in the middle, he's obviously, you know, just achieved huge influence and thus, you know, he's thus created a lot of value for a lot of these uh, platform, you know, podcast platforms and the like. So I think it's the, the opportunity the internet creates is to allow individual voices to, to be amplified massively and ones that people like they'll stick with uh, rather than, you know, the opposite of that, like The Economist, where they don't even have a voice. Like no one has a voice at the Economist. It's just the Economist view. Uh, yeah. I think I think that's the kind of direction you're going. In. 
Which is interesting because I think then that's also a reflection a bit of what has happened to the market in that sense as well, is that what predominantly like markets are always a combination of factors when you look at how they move. Some of it's data driven, some of it's fundamental, and then some of it is just opinion. <laughs> and so when you think about I you know the just the way you're sort of explaining that which is which is bang on about how someone like Joe Rogan can be more important than um you know the New York Times or, or whatever right um it's a bit like that in the market as well is that when Davy Day Trader Global comes out with his green plastic sledgehammer and says I'm going all in on this stock with no justification reason for it or whatever that's more powerful than a quarterly report that just gets released and it it's 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 made for me in particular as well as i've found that how i I look at stocks and try and understand where they're going to move it's a factor that is i wouldn't say important but is certainly more considered now when looking at, at stocks and companies than it used to be about the almost the PR behind it and and I guess that aspect ra- not rather than just solely about fundamentals and you kind of when you learn about stocks and investing in companies you, you you sort of come to the conclusion that over time fundamentals always really sort of win whether they're good or bad you know if they're bad fundamentals they usually you don't win but it seems that that's just not the case as much as it used to be. And so it makes the whole investing world rather volatile, which is exactly what we're seeing play out at the moment. It's just an interesting, I find it almost an interesting parallel of the rise of, and sort of the, the, the dissemination of trusted uh, information sources and the rise of opinion and how that flows into the markets as well. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? In from, in, in, am I on the money with that, or is it, is it maybe a, am I looking too much into it? Uh, I think I know. I, I don't. I certainly don't think you're looking too much into it. I wonder if there's uh, to get to the real truth of the matter, you'd need to go even deeper than that. I think you'd need to uh, probe even more than that. I think the yeah, you do wonder what really sways opinion in markets, right? Um, yeah. And similarly, what sways the opinion of actors who can influence markets at the same time? So um, Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve has openly admitted uh, and remarked that, uh, you know, you can find some really good financial information on Twitter. But (laughs) nobody knows what his Twitter handle is, right? So nobody (laughs) knows what information he's seeing. And... We probably it's almost certainly not saying anything, but somebody I remember some when that information came out, somebody remarked at the time, like if Jerome Powell is on Twitter, yeah. he's on fi- FinTwit, he's on finance Twitter, he must see the speculative excesses that are going on, right? He, there is there is no way this guy could not like if you're if you're on FinTwit where everyone just wants to show you something weird that's going on. There's no way this guy cannot be seeing uh, financial excess to some degree. And yet in public, or his public persona, he's saying, no, we're not seeing any signs of you know, ridiculous behavior going on. So it, it makes you wonder what opinions might somebody have put or might somebody put in future on Twitter that makes your own power think, hmm, hmm, maybe this would be worth more of a look. Maybe maybe something's going a bit wrong here or oh, contrary wise maybe we're not doing enough you know, maybe <laughs> we need to go further this is this we looks like to... a crisis is you know about to happen push we the need... turbo on that printing press <laughs> exactly right so you it is a, it's a great quite i don't think i'm it, there was a thing a while back where you know investment research for um big financial players uh, was changed in a big way uh, when it came to, so it was part of the MIFID II regulations really, yeah. changed the manner in which financial research was charged for. And these yeah. people saw commissions and backhanders and things like that. And they, they got rid of that and made it much more um, 
supposedly fair. But what it also did at the same time is kind of make it uh, just an extra. The research is something is kind of just an extra. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people commented that I, I remember reading about the the vast you know, quantities of research that was being done by these banks, research reports on various equities or markets uh, or uh, you know, emerging economy, you know, individual emerging economies. There was so much of it and no one was reading it, right? So, so yeah, and it, it makes you wonder when someone says, um, when nobody reads the research anymore. I mean, this is something I've heard people say, you know, nobody, nobody reads, reads the research. No one wants to know what the fundamentals are anymore. <laughs> right? That doesn't matter. That makes you think, well, there's quite a clear opinion that has been formed or an attitude that's been formed that has created that behavior. What, you know, if, if fundamentals don't matter anymore, what is it that may think fundamentals don't matter anymore? Uh, and what might make you change that opinion? What might make you see, well, you know, other than a market crash, that make you rethink that? Uh, I'm not sure, I don't know. Um, you know, it's funny because we, we started on the subject of ETPs earlier, right? Yeah. And the, the, as, uh, as you probably know, Sam, there was a, a certain ETP of mine that was, uh, was a real, real favorite, uh, sort of a love-hate relationship, um, which was, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually moving out of my flat here in Kensington at the moment. I'm, I'm getting out of here and I will be... Uh, I won't be returning to this area probably in London in the future. I may well come back to London, but uh, in it for the for now until the end of the year, I'm not gonna. I'm probably not gonna be in London very much. And uh, so I'm actually I'm taking all the stuff with me, and I've got this framed image. You know, I took this down earlier today because I, I I will I will take it with me. It is a a personal favorite. Of course, if you're listening to this, you're not going to be able to see it. But if you're <laughs> reading uh, any of my writing at the time, uh, you may. Uh, you may well have uh, you may well have seen <laughs> this chart, and um, this is a chart of uh, the XIV, which was uh, the inverse VIX. Um, it shorted the VIX effectively, and you know, it was very very cleverly called XIV, just as a uh, you know, it's, a, you know, it's VIX backwards. It doesn't mean it's not actually fourteen in Roman numerals or anything. Uh, but <laughs> it was uh, this product was just an incredible product, and all it did was sold VIX futures. And it made so much money for people who owned it, uh, you know, bought it in say uh, 2016. Um, you know, when they were, you know, at the beginning of 2016, it was about $20. And then in 2018, you know, December 2018, it was, no, December 2017, sorry, uh, it was $140. So, you know, a real winner. You got that's uh, some 7x over the course of, uh, you know, effectively two years. And, uh, and it made all these gains. And then, mm-hmm. You know, in, uh, over the course of one one night in February, it, it erased all of them, and it's just an incredible chart, and it's such a nice chart, you know, just such a such a powerful chart of uh, you know very uh, uh, you know this rapid ascent, uh, you know, almost drawn by it with a set square, uh, and then overnight, like literally overnight, uh, it, was, it was what was called an acceleration event. Uh, the entire the value of the the entire product went effectively to zero uh you know it went to like six or something but you know from like 100 and 130 120 and it just uh, just evaporated overnight and so it makes you wonder well you know, and it was such a i first drew that chart it was with a it was with a piece of um uh, chart software i think it was called trading view i think it was called um yep. no i think it was stock charts stockcharts.com and they had this there's this effect that you can do on stock charts which is just called sunset uh, and it, it just makes this very, very nice, uh, very nice background color. I don't actually know why they use, why they use it. I mean, it doesn't really help with much of uh, with, with much of the stock, but it is very aesthetic. And I call this this chart the sunset on the retail volatility salesman, uh, just uh, as a sort of uh, christen it somewhat because it was uh, this is the end of uh, the everyman because it was very, very popular for for what we described as retail traders since since they buy and own this thing. There's a great story about a, a volatility hedge fund uh, trader. Uh, so this guy's uh, his bread and butter is knowing what's going on here, being told by his taxi driver, in fact, I think it was an Uber driver, uh, telling him uh, uh, about this great stock that he's bought called the XIV, and it's a biotech company, <laughs> and they just keep on making money. And he and he, you know, just like, wait a minute, that that is not a biotech company. You are doing something incredibly risky, and you should probably sell it. 
and it was around that you know it was around that kind of time uh, that uh, you know the February sort of 2018 when uh, when suddenly it was it was sunset it, you know it was over all manner of crazy stories uh, you know how four is seen as a very uh, a very unlucky number in uh, in languages uh, in Southeast Asia you know all the difference of Chinese dialects uh, and then and there was a Singaporean guy uh, a Singaporean trader who had who effectively started a small hedge fund where he just bought the XIV <laughs> and he got money from friends and family and stuff like oh, wow. to just buy more XIV. Uh, and 14 means, uh, so for 14 is for all of the fours, 4, 14, 24, 34, they're all considered very unlucky. So you get these hotels in, uh, in China yeah, where there's no the 14th floor. floor. Yeah. Yeah. 14th floor. I'd say, you know, all the way up. So really weird elevators and things. Uh, and so it, it's because it's four sounds similar to death. Uh, so four, 14 actually sounds similar to want to die. And there was this very strange sort of scenario of this fellow in Singapore actually saying he wants to die because he bought the XIV and stuff because he lost so much money on it. Wow. Well, it's just a really crazy, crazy uh, environment. What, what, what makes somebody buy, think that they've got a biotech stock that is just not even close to that? That's like buying a skateboard and thinking you've just bought yourself a brand new Porsche 911. Yeah, it's a uh, or or worse. I mean, it's like it's like or the reverse, like a rocket. <laughs> yeah, it's like buying a rocket and thinking you've bought you know uh, you know a pair of roller skates. Um, maybe it's something to do with the name because it was managed by Velocity Shares. You know, Velocity Shares maybe maybe yeah. uh, short term ETN. It is ETN. Maybe ETN you could use as some kind of. Maybe that's a, an acronym that's used in the medical profession. I'm not sure. It sounds uh, like the kind of um, binary option trading scams that you see popping up and around yeah. the markets from time to time as well. Velocity yeah. shares sells mm. you binary options trading for this XIV ETN. <laughs> and they, it, this, this circles back to what we were saying before about how complex some, some of these things have just become. Where, yeah. You know, the average person just, I don't know, it, it makes it challenging to, for, for the average investor to try and, I say average investor, but I, I don't mean average in terms of, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there, just the non-sophisticated um, investor, that, you know, that stupid terminology that, that's used in traditional markets. But anyway, besides that, well, I mean, just, I... I, I would uh, I understand I understand what you're saying. And the, you know, why you would buy why you'd buy something like so I hated this thing. Uh, you know, I, I like I just, it was just, I just thought it was perverse that this <laughs> yeah. this exchange trade note just kept going up. And it was just because they were selling VIX futures and VIX futures uh, continued to be sold and sold and sold. Uh, and you know, the VIX did keep going down and down and down. And it was um, it was interesting because uh, in terms of the actual volatility of the stock market, the stock market was actually uh, had even less volatility through 2017 than the VIX actually did. The VIX is uh, is trying to talk about anticipated future volatility. So even though it was a record low VIX, effectively, the actual volatility was even lower. So you could, you know, the argument was there that actually the VIX is um, is overpriced at, at these levels because for some reason the market is just incredibly becalmed. And it was incredibly becalmed uh, until it wasn't. Right? This whole thing blew up in February, and it makes and it kind of, I was I bring it up because it's when you're talking about opinions changing, um, it's events like what was called Volmageddon yep. in February 2018. That was something that really did change a lot of opinions. So people were selling vol uh, and were thinking the volatility was going to stay low, and uh, maybe it was just the the behavior of you know a couple of years of vol being pretty low. I just reinforced that opinion to the yeah. point where people were taking incredibly high risk and really neglecting everything that was going on in the world in terms of things that could jeopardize the market um, that they just kept on doing it. I mean, I don't know what would, what, what made people so committed to selling vol like that. Um, um, you know, and I say this to somebody who, who actually shorted, was shorting the VIX at the beginning of, of, uh, of this year because it was my, my thesis we were going to have a big market melt up uh, and then Corona came along and you know, <laughs> blew, blew everything up in March. So I, you know, I lost money on, on that trade and then the melt up has since happened after then. But, uh, <laughs> but going back to the, yeah. just what, what changes opinions? Volmageddon. Uh, you know that that was that was one of these events where any if you did have an opinion on it and you had money back in that opinion you you could have lost a 
huge amount of it. The big and the the yeah, XIV is only one of those products. There were other fixed products that blew up even more spectacularly. There was one, uh, if memory serves, called the uh, the uh, the the Preser preservation and growth hedge fund, which was a wow. similar. Uh, which was it was effectively just selling selling vol, but it was called preservation and growth for whatever reason. They they actually managed to get away with calling it that. But we have that Volmageddon in February 2018. We've now are we? Do you think we're just going to have Tech Mageddon now? You know yeah. this because uh, I've seen that massive sell. Could that be because it's not it's nothing like Volmageddon was, uh, or it's not like Volmageddon was yet because we've only been in it for wow. a couple of days. Maybe there'll be changes, changes of opinions. Yeah, I mean everything's great until it's not right. So. You know, I've always said that one of the hardest things to do in investment is to sell out of a winning position and not just the winning position to sell out of a big winning position. Yeah. I want to keep your winners. Cause yeah, you, you know, you, you see such a, you know, when, when, when investors do luck onto a good big winner, it's just like, wow, it could go higher. It's, it's the old, it could go higher. Just like the, um, you know, when on the downside, if you're sitting on a big loser, it's like, well, it might bounce back. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But so I yeah. think it's harder to sell a big winning position than it is to sell a losing position. And on that, I think that probably the one thing that, you know, I, I, I sort of questioned it before, but I, I, I deep down believe that in the end, in the long run, uh, fundamentals always win. I mean, stocks will always trade at a multiple of fundamental valuation, but fundamentals always win. And that right now, there's a lot of stocks, particularly that concentration of tech stocks in the US that aren't trading at, according to proper fundamental valuations, is that there, there, there's too much opinion. There's too much... Uh, there's just too much hype built into their price to justify the levels that they're at. And then it's probably going to be a tech Mageddon. Um, not, not in the whole market, but certainly in the tech sector where there's going to be some rude wake up calls, I think for some of the investors in some of these companies and that the, the shrewd move would be to consider where you're at with them. If you're on a big win, you know, you've got to you got to really look at how you manage your capital risk and the downside. Like I, I, I use the analogy because Apple touched on like, I think I think I was, I think I when I ran the numbers on Tuesday, I think Apple and and Amazon combined market cap was up around um, it's about four trillion US dollars between the two of them, which was a which 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 equated to about three trillion pounds. And um, just according to some of the numbers off of Statista, the, that sort of statistics website, that all the stocks that trade on the London Stock Exchange total combined market cap was about $3.1 trillion. Uh, sorry, 3.1 trillion pounds. So give or take a couple hundred billion here or there. Apple and Amazon were effectively trading at the same valuation as every single stock listed on the London Stock Exchange. None of that can be sustainable. Apple doesn't become a $4 trillion company and one stock be worth the entire market capitalization of the London Stock Exchange. That not, not with the, I mean, Apple, don't get me wrong, Apple makes a lot of money. They're profitable, got a big war chest. Amazon, great company, but these, you know, we look, you look at earnings ratios and you look at something like Apple, it's up around, that was up around 40 times. I remember when 12 times earnings ratios used to be astronomical. So you've got to factor in that some of these, some of these big tech companies that are trading at crazy multiples, uh, and, and valuations that far, far, far exceed any sort of fundamental value that they've got. Uh, the, the, the bulk of that's just traded up on, on, on opinion and hype and maybe some good PR, which all do weigh into you know, additional value into stocks as opposed to their sort of base level net value. But at the levels we're at now, I, I can't see there being any other way but a, but a tech Mageddon if you want, if we should call it that in the, in the big sort of tech world, particularly in the U S markets, 
I think that a lot of the other markets around the world will shave off a bit because of that tech Megadon, but not to the extent that we'd probably see in the US. And so I think that it's going to actually create a bit of a reallocation of money out from, from big tech uh, into maybe some of the other pockets of opportunity that exist on some of the other markets around the world. So there's a lot of focus on US and US tech stocks and US markets for now. And it seems to be the, you know, it's, it's the thing because it's just, it's unbelievable in many sense, but I think that's going to change. And I think that's going to change pretty quickly actually, because there gets, you get to a point where there's probably going to be some <laughs> positions, some, some leveraged positions, leveraged ETPs or ETNs uh, that start to do what your old mate um, XIV did. And that, that we, could, we could be in a spot of bother for liquidity for a lot of investors that are tied up in some of these things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I went for dinner, uh, I think it was last week, with, a, uh, with an old friend of mine who uh, he, he runs, a, he runs a, quite a defensive fund. And uh, he's always very fascinating to talk to you on uh, you know, geopolitics and things like that. We were talking about this sort of tech boom and just the crazy sort of ride in tech. And I, I, and I, I, I just... I just sort of made the observation. Like it seems, uh, it certainly seemed then at least, I mean, it seems that um, US tech, it's almost like it's being treated as the, the, you know, the blue chip tech companies are being you know, transformed or being treated as though they're being transformed into safe haven assets. Like the only reason there's, a, there's so much buying going on that it's like people are just substituting bonds or at least some of their bonds for these blue chip tech companies. Like they're being seen as these sort of fortresses of capital, you know, places where this, their market is liquid enough that we can begin treating this like a, um, you know, we begin treating this like a safe haven, like a, almost like a bit like a bond. And to which he responded, well, you know, there is, um, there is an argument that you, you know, there is an, there's something of an argument for that when you look at what the potential upside is for a bond, which of course is limited, um, or it appears to be limited if you're holding it to maturity when you know, yields go to zero. Yep. Of course, you can go negative, but that, that only relies on someone else then buying it from you at an even higher price with an even higher negative yield. But you know, with bonds, there is, when, when, you're, when you're effectively, you know, US 10 year is low enough, this is the gold standard, well, the gold standard is the, um, the the safe haven of choice, the U.S. World Reserve asset, as you'd as you'd describe it. You know, the yield on this thing is low enough; it's so low that uh, you get to the point where there can't be any upside. Uh, that is mm. that you know you know until you get to zero. I mean, that, the only upside is what is that is you traveling to get to zero, and it's not very not very far from here. So, if you're a global asset manager, manager, you could say, well, the, the upside. For the for these bonds is you know zero. We're only and you know if it and if we're only getting zero yields, we're not getting any any dividends. Right? We're not getting anything from it. Ultimately, we're going to get some some dividend cash flows, but they're not well. Some we're going to get some income, some coupons that are going to be paid to us. But in terms of how much we paid for the bond from the outset, that is not really going to offset that very much. So, if we uh, you know if we if we go for a blue chip U.S. tech stock. Well, then, I mean, the, they're still playing dividends and, you know, the, the upside is still unlimited for these things. Um, but while, you know, and he, you know, came, he came across with this argument and, uh, and it was just a stray observation. I mean, it wasn't something I really, you know, it's just an idea sort of I, I wanted to play with. You know, what if these things, when we look, when bonds are go, there's so many negative yielding bonds out there and there's still loads of capital that needs to be allocated for pensions and things like that. You know, where else are they really going to go? But as I said that, and, and I told them at the time, the very fact that I'm even suggesting to you that this is happening, the, the, the very fact that I, you know, I'm a pretty bearish guy generally, <laughs> the fact that I am suggesting to you that US tech companies are becoming a safe haven <laughs> for global capital, right? Apple, Amazon, Google, uh, the fact that I'm telling you this 
is a contrarian indicator in itself. The yeah, fact that you, I, the, the fact you're saying that, that that's, that's peak. We've, we've yeah, reached time the peak. To sell. That is time <laughs> to sell. And that was only maybe one or two weeks ago, mate. So maybe, maybe it was, uh, but just the you, fact that I would say it like, just the fact I wanted to play with the idea. It was just so like, this is absolutely absurd that I'm even uttering this. Like, we should have the, some sort of Boaz. Google is um, now a, you know, this is the season. Yeah, it should be some sort of Boaz indication um, uh, index or something like that. So, uh, uh, Boaz contrarian indication index. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get want to get this excited about any stock? It's time to sell. <laughs> when when I hear you just come just kicking down the doors in the office and just be like, "You must buy this stock. It's amazing." I'm like sell. Everybody so, yeah, we need to no, we need to short it. We need to short. We need to make short. a three times short ETP on that product immediately. <laughs> That'll be the thing, though, right? I, I, and 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 I think before we before we wrap it today and give a bit of a review of the too many opinions, I'm going to give one more opinion. Is that um, uh, I, I I think we might get to a point where you end up where smart developers rather than t traditional sort of um you know money men so to speak or fundies um where you know smart coder or developer can build their own sort of autonomous organization to and employ some algorithms to to create their own little little fund that that does a lot of this sort of stuff it, again it's 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 a bit like the crypto world leading uh the the traditional financial world is terms like right now you know if you're a smart enough develop, developer you could effectively build your own little crypto hedge fund um and employ that out and have a whole bunch of anybody whoever wants to have a crack at it invest in it and that might be the next stage of um how traditional markets develop is, is it's not about the fundies anymore but we continue with these sort of products and access to these products that are developed by just well, nerds frankly smart very smart very sophisticated very um very shrewd nerds and that 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 we can we can have a you know we could have a a, a boaz indication contrarian fund or we can have a volkering um you know volatility uh, index five times leveraged <laughs> you know product i i think i think there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement in terms of what can be done in financial markets, but for so long, it's been very constrained and constricted to those that are supposedly in the know. But I think that might be changing and that might open up a whole new world to price discovery, what fundamental values of companies or, 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 or indices or products or markets can be. And, you know, I think while, you know, it, we can sometimes get a bit, bleak about how crazy markets can be and and maybe there is a tech mageddon coming and things like that but at the end when you push the boat out and look at the long run there, there's probably some exciting developments that come out the back of those sorts of things as well about what can be done who has access to it and then how you can find you know genuine price or opportunity in some of the the quirks and nuances of different markets around the world so you know i think you take the good with the bad and you kind of find a balance in there somewhere are you suggesting that um, effectively on, on that crypto side of things where you could get somebody uh, using smart contracts to sort of uh, not require any institutional backing, but yeah. could just automate an awful lot of the, uh, and, you know, and make themselves, uh, you know, remove the uh, personal interest risk effectively, yeah. you know, the, the ability to steal from the from fund by using smart contracts and like, I mean, ultimately you're suggesting that uh, similar as we were talking about how individuals, have used the internet to become bigger than the media that mm. you think an individual smart contractor could <laughs> could become bigger than the fund management space that'd yeah. be really cool i that'd think really i cool. think so I, I think the funds management industry is going to get shaken up much faster than they probably realize and it's going to happen really soon oh well I, we're in uh, hotly anticipated mate hotly anticipated now, uh, now, in terms of rating this, too many opinions water down the original idea. What's your <laughs> rating for it? Yeah, well, so I uh, I enjoyed this. It's certainly, you know, it's a it's a good strong eight percent uh, West Coast deeper double IPA, and um, it certainly wasn't watered down. Uh, 
and I I actually really enjoyed that. Um, you know, maybe it was just because I was distracted because we were talking about some pretty cool shit there. But um, <laughs> the, the, the thing I like probably more than anything is that one of the hops they use in here is a Chinook. And I've always had this weird affinity. I don't know. I love the, I love the word Chinook. I've always loved those big giant Chinook helicopters, you know, when they're like carrying Humvees into right. torn areas. Um, I find that quite fascinating just as a side note. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, it didn't actually taste like it was a strong 8%. Um, very easy to drink. I think I, I, the, this may even join the Mungu juice on my return to um, list. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, I enjoyed that a lot. I, I, I hesitate to give it a, any more than a double B though. I think, I think that's a, that's a, an, again, a solid double B for me, I think with that one. Mm. Yeah. So what you think this, this might get the asterisk of feminine approval. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. It, it, it's not sometimes the, the double IPAs can be pretty heavy and, 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 some uh, yeah it's, it's it's a challenging one that was a contradiction in terms it was a it was a, lo- a light heavy beer um, <laughs> um but it, it, ridiculously easy to drink i found that i didn't struggle with it i don't feel bloated it wasn't crazy heavy it was it was a, a, a double ipa that drinks like a just a regular ipa yeah, I must say, if, yeah, I, I agree that if too many opinions water down the original idea, this beer must be expressing very few opinions. Uh, very, th- yeah, it's it's kind of thick, while at the same time still being, um, you know, kind of, it's almost like a smoothie. You know, kind yeah. Of thick, but yeah, very smooth to drink. Um, yeah, I've I've really enjoyed this very much. Uh, it didn't really feel like 8%. It feels, uh, feels like, you know, you're, you're consuming quite a lot of... Uh, probably calories i suppose <laughs> but uh but no i mean it didn't taste it didn't taste like you're uh, you're really consuming something that's um, gonna hit you really hard but it does hit you pretty hard um yeah this is uh, this is a great one uh, i'm no yeah, i think we're we're on the same page with this sam i'm give, gonna give this one a, a double b as well uh, i must say you know and, and while we've had some quite divergent opinions on previous episodes it seems like uh, today we're, we're yeah, right bang on, on the money today yeah. yeah all right any closing remarks before we wind this one up no, my bad. My bad enough. We've <laughs> <laughs> had enough. Well, there you have it, folks. That was the thirteenth episode of Booze, Booms, and Bus. Hope you enjoyed it, and hope you'll tune in again with us next week. Uh, in the meantime, hope you have a very good weekend. Hope you're uh, you're relaxing at the, at the time you're hearing this, and we should be back again with you, as I said, in uh, in just a few more days' time. But we'll see you then, and we'll see you later.